Hello, listeners, and welcome to Gotta Jabru, the podcast where two friends talk about two of our favorite things, fish and beer. And by fish, I mean the amazing band, not the aquatic. Is not, it an animal? Not the pro, not the protein. Yeah, sure. The yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> you're thinking about that from such a carnivore's point of view, but yes, it's delicious. Delightful. <laughs> cool. So for today's topic in the fish realm, we are talking junta. Correct pronunciation, not junta. <sighs> yeah, I wouldn't know. I'm looking at it, and I still don't know how to say it. <laughs> All right. And I know how to read. (laughs) So really interesting uh, nerd fact I picked up this week as I was doing my deep dive and listening to this album. Um, There is a uh, there's a interview with Trey over Landline. Um, It's I think it's like 94, 93. And he's basically like telling the story of like how the album got its name and it's actually from their first manager. Correct. The album is named after Ben. How do you say it? Junta. Junta Junta Hunter. Double O's are like in look. The band's first official manager agent. Junta. Junta. Hard J soft U. (laughs) Junta. Junta. Yeah. So that is how you say it. Junta. (laughs) Got it. Thank you. Wikipedia. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Yeah, so uh, basically after talking so about Game Henge, which is the the first set of songs that we were at, I, I thought it would be a good spot to go to next of their first major studio album. Correct. This, Junta is their first recorded album ever released. Correct. And it was released on tape. Correct. In 1989. Right, so there's three releases of this song in total. This album? Um, uh, this song, yeah, this album in total, and those three uh, releases are the first one, which are released on tape. So Got there's it. a certain number of songs that will fit on the cassette. Correct. I remember so, those days. Right. So basically, all of the songs up to I believe it's uh, Contact, the first eleven tracks. The last three, Union Federal, Sanity, and Iculus, I believe get added after they release it on CD and have the extra space um, to fit the three songs. And those three songs come from a live performance on 7-25-88, so July 25th, uh, 1988. Got it. <laughs> oh, so that is that why there's like a disc one quote and disc two? Well, either way, there's different versions of this complete album. I think, yeah, when they when they released it as the discs, they just, uh, I mean, because Union Federal by itself is over 20 minutes long. It's like 22 minutes long, so I think they released it as a two disc set. Got it. It's, again, where I, when you talk music and you're like going back in time, especially you're just talking about number number of songs per album is just based on the music, uh, like literally file format. So you have it on. The old, old school records, the smaller records, sure. the 45s. I think it's, what, four songs? And then, you, obviously, as you get bigger... Right, like, right, right, right. There's physical space that music can fit on when right. you're talking about a tape yeah. or a record because it's a physical piece of, of Right, it's like a hard material. drive on your computer. Yeah, Correct. there's only so much space it has. So My note here says that the cassette and vinyl versions include a longer version of Contact. Okay. So that would be the only, I guess, the difference between that and the CD I love that digital version. I hate that song, but I enjoyed listening to it. Listening to it today. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that. 
<laughs> and there are worse songs on this album. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. So let's go through. <laughs> let's pick this apart. Let's dissect this a little bit. This is the 1989 cassette version. Side one. Right? You have a cassette now, so you're side one and side two. Sure. Side one. Fee. You enjoy myself. Esther. Golgi apparatus. Foam. Dinner in a movie. Side two. The Divided Sky, which is interesting because I know it is Divided Sky. David Bowie, Fluffhead, Fluff's Travels, Part 1, Fluff's Travels, Part 2, The Chase, Part 3, Who Do We Do, Who Do We Do, Part 4, Claude, Part 5, Bundle of Joy, Part 6, Arrival, and then you have your last contact. That's different from what I just listened to today, which is the CD version, the 1992 CD version. Right. The fir- the whole first part is the same that I that I just read out. Okay. But then disc two is Fluffhead, Fluff Travels, uh, Contact, Union Federal, Sanity, and Nicholas. This is a, that's what you were just talking about. Right. So what what are what are some notable things about these tracks? This album. What are some things we should be pulling out and, and talking about? I mean, I think one of the uh, important things that I see is that after we did the episode on the Minute Step Review yesterday, a lot of stuff made sense in terms of those shows and the time period. So we're talking about like 88 to, to like 92. Like so early, very early. 88 to 92, as we were listening to those shows where Gamehenge was played in its entirety, uh, the frequency of those songs made sense given what was on their plate and what songs they had. And you'll notice that some of those songs that were kind of in the breadbasket already are on this album. Right. So that's where you, you know... I mean, some songs didn't exist yet, like Esther. I mean, the fact that they got Esther down by 92 just shows that, you know, they were still morphing stuff from, the, you know, the man who stepped into yesterday up until now. Um, it also, for me, kind of makes a, a couple songs, like, kind of stand out in terms of what they've been playing for such a long time and what stayed in general rotation from then till now. Uh, Fee is still played a lot. You Enjoy Myself is obviously, I mean, it's... N- it's for me one of the songs I've chased the most. Um, I've only gotten four or five of them at this point, and I'm over a hundred shows. It's like my <laughs> it's not really a white whale at this point. Definitely gotten it a few times, but um, yeah, I mean, this whole album, I think it's well, most of the songs, like I would say, like 60% of the songs on this are, are like rarer songs when they play them live. Yeah, I mean, Esther, some of them aren't. Golgi like, apparatus is kind of not. Um, G- Golgi is not, I would say, um, but a, mo- like all the rest of them are. You like think? Fee is rare. You enjoy myself isn't so rare now. Um, or I, I, I uh, you could argue that it wasn't either. I think you. I still consider you enjoy myself as like a treat, and I never expect to see it. Um, yeah, foam I, is not that played. Uh, Divided Sky is played often, and so is David Bowie, I would say. But th- everything else is pretty rare. To me, this is like the meat and potatoes of fish. That's why I really right. want to talk about this album today. Okay. Like, it really sets up a lot of stuff that, again, st- it's still a lot of material that they're still using now. And I think right. that, that is telling because, you know, it's the first time they walk into a professional studio and an engineer turns to them and says, well, so what are we doing today, guys? And this right. is what they decided to put out. So... um there, there's a sense of nostalgia to me that these songs are where they are. And even, you know, how I, I view them now, having listened, I've listened to this album probably about seven or eight times since our last episode. Okay. I've just been basically running it 
front to back over and over and over again. And there are things that I really start to enjoy and appreciate uh, when they have other people come in and, and play with the band and like how they fill out that space and whatever. I feel like you notice more of that musicianship and composition of Trey when you start looking at these studio albums. Uh, one of the reasons that is, like in Divided Sky, for example, now because you're with an engineer and you can sit down, you can go back and you can do stuff over and over again, you can make things perfect. There's like three different guitar parts on Divided Sky. And on Fluffhead, there's an acoustic guitar part, which obviously never happens whenever you see them live. So there's components to it that are I mean, different. It's, it's, this, it, it's the same intro. It's just he plays an acoustic guitar in the there, studio. Version. There's more layered parts. Like, if I guess the only way to compare that to something now is, like, when they get into, like, a jam or something and Trey starts using the loop pedal. Right. So that's so, what I'm saying. There's things right. that you can't. Um, so th it doesn't surprise me that you like this <laughs> this album recorded version of most of these songs. I do not. Okay. I think you as a musician and, and enjoying Fish for their musicianship and how great of musicians they are and understanding music and actually being able, being able to study and kind of pick apart the actual music uh, is why you like this studio album version. <laughs> There's just stuff that's, yeah, that's different. It, to, Do you it, feel to, like you hear more? It's the song the way that they would want to play it if they had six hands. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like in its entirety, the whole soundscape of the song is different because you can do stuff in a studio that you can't do live. It, to me, it's just the way the song, if a chef served you a dish and you wanted to alter it later, you know, go to the special instructions and change some things, like this is the way the chef intended it to be. That's how I see this. Right. And like every element of the recording is controlled. Right. So, perfect example. I hate Fee. I do. I really don't like that song. I don't like getting it live. It's my go take a piss song. And for a lot of people in the crowd, they like start freaking out and they love it. When I started doing this album listen, I started to really enjoy Fee because the things that I normally hate about the song are now controlled. So one of the things is the everybody in the background singing Fee over and over again on the on the chorus. Right. And now all of a sudden that's all in line. It's it's not later behind the beat. It's all in tune cuz you know they can go back and sing it as many times as they want until they hit it perfectly. And now because that's no longer a thing that's lingering in my brain, I can enjoy and sit back on the song a little more. So I actually feel the opposite of what you said. I actually like going back and listening to the studio versions because that gives me a different perspective and something that matters to me so much. One of the reasons I, it took me a really long time to get into Fish was because I really enjoy vocals. I really think when you have harmonies, they should be tight, like, Beach Boys style stuff. Right, know. right, right. Like it actually pleasing to your ear. Correct. So right. when you do that in a studio setting, it's like a controlled experiment in, you know, science. It's like it's the perfect scenario that you're going to get. And right. I, I, I like that. It helps me attack the song with a fresh set of ears because things aren't going to really be sticking out to me anymore. Um, so I, I don't think if I still got Fee Live, I would like it. I think I would still go take a piss. But now uh, I definitely have an appreciation for it more, and I think it's helping me uh, not, or like, I don't know, bother me, but I guess bother me is the right word. It doesn't bother me as much if I were to get it now. <laughs> 
So you're saying after listening to this album, how many times? Ten times? Over ten times, yeah. That you you have a growing appreciation for these songs and you'll hate them less when you get them live? Some of them. So another one that we should talk about is right after You Enjoy Myself, the third track on the album, Esther. I still hate Esther. It's too, like, I get it's supposed to be like a carousel. She's, like, in a theme, uh, an amusement park where she picks up the doll and, like, it's part of the song. It's really cool. But it gets so droney to me that even with it being perfect and studio you know, mastered and everything, I still don't like it. So so speak a little about that song. What's the origin of that song? Why is it played? What's, yeah, what so is the lore behind it? We've mentioned it in some other episodes because it is a by-proxy song of Gamehenge. So the background music came from the interludes of The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday. So that, we, you know, I was saying when we introed this episode that, you know, this is the stuff that came after the man who stepped into yesterday. So things are still morphing and they pulled from some stuff and they got some inspiration from some other stuff. So there is a show and I don't know the date off the top of my head um, where Trey actually explains that Esther is in the land of Gamehenge and all this stuff that's happening to her um, is in fact, you know, in, in the realm. Uh, which is cool because, you know, it it does tie in the whole, haha, we pulled from the interludes. So this is part of this universe. Other thing that's really, uh, interesting about this song is that it's really depressing <laughs> so it totally does fit into the man who stepped into yesterday she ends up getting this doll that basically ruins her life and then they're like haha you shouldn't have taken the doll to begin with <laughs> um but yeah that's honestly all i really want to say about esther i really don't okay. like it <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> not, okay not cool. a good song um, oh what is your favorite song on this album oh david bowie for sure david bowie is my first fish song so it's got a special place in my heart. And when um, you heard it originally, it was a live version, not a studio version. Uh, yes. Got it. It was always live. So my roommate in college out in Boulder, Colorado, uh, would wake up every morning. And when he would take a shower, he would either bust into our shared room uh, playing Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead or David Bowie by Fish. So Sweet. that was my first exposure to fish at all and i actually really enjoyed that song um the lyrics are very minimal it's mostly an instrumental song and when they do say any lyrics it's david 40 uh david bowie or eb40 and they all say it in unison together and it's more like a yell so there's like there's nothing intrusive for me on vocals to like deter right. from liking it so i actually really en- enjoyed it it's again my oldest song every time i get it i freak out um dance my face off to it um yeah so what do you think of the studio version it's great so again there there's this awesome uh maybe uh we'll do that for the uh for the quick 15 minute break but there's a great uh interlude part that is really awesome even via studio sometimes they pull it in you can tell it has um, influenced how they play the song sometimes it doesn't but i enjoy it a lot i i have a very hard time listening to studio albums from Fish. Why is that? Um, I think for the exact reason that you're talking about is how uh, controlled and composed everything is. I like Fish because they are very jammy, improvisational, feed-off-the-energy type band. And none of that is sort of present when you're listening to a studio album. Huh. Yeah, the lyrics are more clean. The vocals are better. They're tighter. Harmonies are better. But to me, it all just sounds very flat. 
Did so? Did you like disc two any more? Having those three tracks from seven twenty five eighty eight. Um. Not really, to <laughs> so be honest. What, what's really interesting about that, I think from a band's perspective, once they got the extra space, they were like, let's also show what we're about as musicians and show that it's a live thing that is really where you come to get us. And like Union Federal is kind of that in it being a 22-minute jam, and it's all over the place. That song is really weird. Like yeah. I was listening to it, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I just kept looking back at, yeah, my device, and it was like still in that song. And I was like, this is weird because... It just feels like sirens and weird ambience and yeah, yeah, and then there are all the, these different parts that are, sound very different from the previous or next. So you who's been to one fish festival, the Magna Ball, would yes. that not seem like a secret set to you? Yeah, yes, that is so, exactly what it seems like. So now remember, uh, Junta is now the first album you're ever putting out there that's going to be in your coconuts or your uh, what else did they have back then? Circuit Cities. Oh, like yeah, that's a CD old? store. Yeah. I went to Nobody Beats the Wiz. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's where I went. I went to Coconuts, I believe. Music. I didn't know what Coconuts was, but <laughs> I, I do know what you're referring to now. <laughs> um, and, yeah. You could purchase the... this in record stores? Yes, this is their first See, I just did, album. Oh, it, yeah. it, they said it was recorded on an independent label, so I pictured it being something very, like, grassrootsy, right, like right. the way that, like, fish fans used to, make tapes and trade them that's kind of more more where i pictured this right but it still ends up getting distributed like this is one of the like if if we were talking to j3po he'd be like this is one of the first albums i could pick up in stores right 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 so i mean i think by the time he was listening to fishy fish he said hoist was i don't remember but um that's how music was received at that point. I mean, again, that's one of the things that's really interesting about talking to people like Matt and J3PO and us talking about Fish is that it's just the format in which you receive the content. So one of my favorite uh, groups on Facebook is called Addicted to Fish. And this guy uh, today actually uh, posts on Addicted to Fish. He's just like, hey, does anybody remember the era of tapes and automatically it was just like fireworks going off on Facebook and people were just like yeah XL uh, sec, uh, XL2 tapes and like yeah I remember like I still have the shoe box underneath my whatever like this is how that frenzy that like they end I remember I saw a documentary on MTV once about Dave Matthews band and how they blew up as a band and it was because of college students and they were just playing the college scene and that's why they kind of just exploded out of nowhere and whatever like fish to me is kind of the thing that allowed that even to happen. You had people who were doing that based on the Grateful Dead because they were trading Dead tapes. And Dead was like one of the first big bands to allow people to come in and record their concerts. That's what Matt was saying during his episode. It's just like you've built this culture on live experience. And not only that, your band is cool enough to allow people to just pass that music around so that it's coveted. So you're, you're, you're basically saying that it's like a baseball game as J3PO describes it. It's like, you know how the backbone of it's going to be, you know, they're going to play three sets, you know, or two sets, sorry. You know that they're going to kind of stretch songs out. That is like the thing that allows what you're talking about, having that live experience to happen. The only way you can capture that is by having that culture, that tape culture, that recording culture. The studio album is meant to like put it in people's plates, like something that they can like buy, something they can have. 
So they have to be clean. They have to be like uh, cut. You can't have a whole album be released of one song. That's also how like the industry wasn't working at the time. You had to build out a complete set, twelve, you know, seven to twelve songs. Yeah, so sure. it's like you're talking about something that's indicative of the time. Is a long-winded <laughs> or a shorter way to say what I just said. Very long-winded. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been dorking out on this album like crazy, and I don't normally <laughs> feel like I do that. <laughs> and I'm surprised you didn't like this album so much because your favorite song is on it, and I thought you were gonna kind of pick that apart and dissect it because it's your favorite song, and. How did that go? It was great. I mean, this sounds like every other version of Fluffhead that I listen to, and it sounds better when I listen to it live because the, like, energy is there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how... To, Fish, to me, is a live band. Even if I liked Fish in 1989, I wouldn't... I probably... I mean, that's not true. I would buy this album because I'd be like, oh, I'm super about this band. It's the only way you can have But I don't know how yet. often I would listen to it. I don't listen... This is the, probably the second time in my life I've listened to this album in its entirety, and I had struggled to get through it. Huh. And I won't go back and ever listen to this again. <laughs> Sorry. It's the truth. I don't like listening to studio albums. I don't. Interesting. You're, you're taking away the essence of what makes this band great. Mm. To me. Yeah. That's I mean, I again, I think that's an awesome uh, way to view fish. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, again, I just think it's really interesting because it. I I think if this were 1992, and you know tapes are existing and some people are recording or whatever, but this is your best way to get it. I think you would have. I don't know. I think you would have wanted to have the album. Would have listened to it more than once or, once or twice. I don't know. Sure, I mean, but I'm coming at it from now, 2018, as yeah. a relatively young Fish fan, and that's the thing that I just, again, take for granted all the time, is that I can like a song. Fluffhead is my favorite song, right? But the the thing that makes Fish cool is arguably, and I know that fans would you know argue with me and say that they go through different versions of playing different songs, and they play it for a while and a while and a while. But the only way you'd really ever know that is if you were seeing them for that you know specific gap of time. My point being is I love Fluffhead because I can go listen to it, what, 30 different ways? And it is the same song in its essence, but they play it differently all the time. They play it differently in different ways all the time, right? Arguably, they'll go through phases and play songs longer or shorter or jam out or develop it or make it longer or this or that. But the reason why I enjoy that song is because I have such an advantage of going back through 30 years worth of their music and listening to it in all different ways. Mm -hmm. I don't just have to go back to the same song and listen to the same way every time. And that's why Fish is a great band. You know, and I, that's why I think having those last three tracks was kind of like daring and cool and kind of scary as you know as a musician like you're putting one version of a jam out there that you know like you to you it, it felt really weird like is that going to turn people away from your music again the goal of having a studio album is to try to put it on people who wouldn't normally go to see a show anyway so it's like right how, right how right. do you like what, right. what what imprint are you trying to put on people who are listening to your music for the first time that's another really cool thing i think about this album is that you have you enjoy myself and fluffhead which are two very long very composed pieces for, you know, at the time what people were considering like uh, a faux 
dead jam band to be. Like it's, I, I, I that's why I, I get really like funny. I think it was Neil Young. It was one of those guys who was like talking crap on Fish on Twitter and shit. And he was just like, oh, who are these dudes? Like whatever. And he got like destroyed on social media. So he went back and he listened to Fish again, and he was just like, I'm actually an idiot. These dudes are really awesome musicians. Yeah, they are. And I think it's because of moments like these. When you listen to the composition in its purest form, people go, damn, this is really tight, and this is really whatever. I think most ears are just a little more superficial to what I think I'm trying to say. People want that Beach Boy perfect. Yeah, but, like, how many times can you listen to that song? That's my th- that's maybe that's my thing is I live in a culture now where you know there's like top 40 songs and they're blasted on the radio 18,000 times a day the same exact way. Yeah. So again, I feel privileged that I found a band that uh has the courage and sort of uh musicianship and talent to play things different ways all the time. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. I don't like artists who sound the same all the time. I don't like albums that pretty much just sound like one giant song. I, I like Fish for the multiple influences that they pull into their music. Yeah. And the way that they play all of those all differently. Yeah. I it mean, keeps it interesting and, and, and refreshing and delightful. Yeah. It's, it's definitely what makes them them for sure. Uh, Do we have any information on the cover of this? The cover of the album. Yes, you know I was thinking about it today as I was I was listening to it and because <laughs> we're just we're know, just talking about like record stores, right? Like yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about myself. The way I, when I walked into my Nobody Beats the Wiz, the way I used to pick albums because I didn't know fucking shit from Shinola, I would look at the album art, right? Yeah. Would were you the same? Would you do um, the same thing? I honestly, when I was, I didn't care. <laughs> How did you so buy little. music? How did you walk into a store and buy music? Uh, what songs I heard on the radio that I liked a lot that I would just go to the store and just get the songs that I wanted. And then so you listened to the radio, found out the artist, and then would go to the record store and find the artist's album. Yeah, I was pretty much uh, just like, I want what I just heard on the radio that's stuck in my head. I, I was like a pop only See, like that's so and different like, from the me. only reason i would buy an album uh was because it had the one or two songs that i wanted on it so right see you are so different from me yeah i would like go into a record store and like spend like hours there just walking around because i would be searching for the thing that like wasn't featured and like wasn't playing on the top 40 like i would want to go in and find like some random fucking obscure thing yeah <laughs> And I would just look at pictures of stuff. And I'd be like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> that's really funny. I know. That's why I, mean, I think my, my musical background is so everywhere. It's, it's literally everywhere. Yeah, I wasn't like that. I, I, um, my biggest in music influence was probably my dad. My dad was like listening to like the Beatles and like top pop like stuff. He definitely liked Motown, but was like pop Motown. Like That's great. Um, my my parents, uh, I think they enjoyed music. They never really listened to music around me, which is kind of a tragedy. They have a ton of vinyl in our basement. We have a ton of vinyl um, of, like, good stuff. Again, like, if they were their age at the time to buy records, they would have bought, like, Beatles records and folk records and stuff like that because I think my parents were a little bit hippie-ish, even though they don't like to admit it. Um, but my dad now, like, growing up as a kid, loved uh, artists like Frank Sinatra. 
and those type of showy, very beautiful voiced, talented voice people. So I was always very bored by those, that music. Hmm. You know, sorry, this is, I, you asked me to figure out some album info. Al- yeah, album and, cover um, while I'm trying to and I cannot fi- and I'm failing, one of the interesting things I will bring up about this album is when uh, this was starting to go down, um, they started like practicing a lot as a band. And I, I thought this was a really interesting fact. Um, so what they would do is they would lock themselves in a room and jam for like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And some of those sessions are... Um, where some of these songs like came from, and I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I just c- can't believe, hey, they <laughs> they were able to do something like that and just like sit in a room all day long and just play together. I think that speaks a lot to their like devotion to their craft and like why they play so well together as they do is because they've kind of <laughs> done the work. Like I don't really know of any band yeah, that I does mean that. I I look at this album as a non-musician. Obviously, you can look at it from, you know, the scope of being a musician, somebody who plays music. I look at it from outside that. I look at this album and I just feel like it continues to um kind of r- confirm my whole like Trey and and Paige and Mike and and Fish. They were very much like um storytellers. They like to tell stories. They like to give you, you know, a very elaborate uh, elaborate music, right? It's it's like these are like symphonic epics, right? Like they're very like composed and like you're saying, like if if I was listening to this for the first time in my life, I'd be like, whoa, this sounds like crazy music that I've never heard. That's very multifaceted. That changes tempo. That changes sound. It's it's they're just very complicated, long fucking stories. They're like epic musical stories. You know, you just reminded me that what I had to call myself out. Um, I think it was our last episode. I said that Trey was an English major. He actually was never an English major. He was a philosophy major, and he was always trying to do composition. Right. Goddard was, I said that. Yeah, Goddard was a uh, grad school. Yeah. Um, so Point for yeah, the Lizza. Yeah, the kid failed on that one. And I, I'm sure we lost some viewers like, amateur kids don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I had to call myself out. I don't know. Okay. That. No, that's cool. Um, Paige was also at Goddard. They convinced See. Paige to transfer there, which was interesting. I want to hear that story. So that's also one of the uh, right before we go to our um, quick fifteen minute break. That's one of the things that I want to say that we're gonna start moving towards is like picking apart some of these interviews and going a little deeper into you know where they were at at the time where they were coming out with music. I know the next episode we're gonna do because I'm gonna give you a break. I'm not gonna try to ever make you listen to a studio album again. Um, I will. Um, I do, and I will. I just need a little break. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about uh, the songs that didn't make the album. So in, in the music scene, those are the B sides. But in the right. fish scene, those are just you know songs that came out in between and and things that just you know never actually made it to the tape. But uh, yeah, when we come back, we're going to talk about our trip that we are taking to Vermont and all the beer we're going to try to drink while we're up there. And uh, yeah, stay with us after our quick 15 minute break. Uh. 
Your headlights in front, your tailpipe or the skylight above you. It's the way you cling to the road when the wind tries to shove you. I'd never go driving away and come back home without you.
Welcome back to College of Brew, where we talk about two of our favorite things, fish and beer. I am the Lizza. The kid. And that is the kid himself. And you got both of us here for the next meh, 35 minutes or so talking about beer. What are you drinking over there? Um, what is this? This is a Lawson's Finest Liquids Sip of Sunshine India Pale Ale. And where is it from? Or IPA for short. Correct. Where is this bad boy from? I believe it is from Indiana. Wrong. Chicago. Nope. Is that in Indiana? Oh, that's in Indiana. Uh, Ohio. Pennsylvania? No. Oh, Vermont. Oh, oh, Vermont. Oh, man. you! I thought you were joking, and then you <laughs> totally just gave yourself away. Yeah. This is from <laughs> Vermont. Lawson's is from Vermont. Uh, this actual can comes to us courtesy of uh, Connecticut, because Lawson's cans now out of two roads in Connecticut. Yeah. So this beer is, we have the extreme pleasure, because we live so close, of drinking it very, very fresh to its packaged on date. This beer was 14th, packaged on February. yeah February 14th, and today is the 26th. So that's pretty amazing that we're drinking this beer like... A week old? Yeah. 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 It's pretty fresh. Yeah. It's very super fresh. And for an IPA, that's really, really important. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that <laughs> how much impact you've had on my palate. Uh, when I first started even drinking craft beer, I didn't really take notice of the freshness of a beer. But it's probably now one of the most important things that I look for when I'm selecting beer. Uh, it's also something that I'm becoming more finicky about as a home brewer. I want people to drink my my stuff as fresh as possible. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of an, like an ass about it. I'm like after like a month, I'm like, I don't want you to drink it anymore. <laughs> like clearly the, the shelf life of beer is, you know, six months. Is it six months? All different, um, all different breweries have different code dates for their beer. Um, and as you kind of touched on before, uh, Basically, it's important to drink some styles fresher than others. Um, it's it's really interesting. As, ever since I've been in the beer industry, uh, the thing that's always been really hard to kind of convince people or to get people to wrap their heads around is that beer should be treated like a food. Beer is a food, right? right. It's, it should be treated as such, like a product as such. Am so I it should it be like fresh it should food be, or cooked yeah, food? exactly. It should, see, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. You should really be drinking it and consuming it as fresh as possible because it's only going to deteriorate the longer you leave it. Right. So I, I know I know a big thing for um, for you when we first met, uh, you had a lot of beer just sitting around, and I remember you telling me I don't know which one of your friends. She she is like in a I, I forget she ages beer or she like she knows people who do sure do you know what I I'm think I about? I think I know the story you're trying to refer to yeah, my friend who went to UC Davis right right yeah, right, yeah. right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> go ahead yeah go on so trained as she was by UC Davis which is one of kind of the best programs for beer uh, in the country in the U S California um, yeah. Yeah, it's located in California. She she was just like, man, I don't I don't get the whole idea of laying stuff down and aging stuff because in that program, as you are in Cicero, which is what I did, uh, you're taught all these things that happen to beer the longer it sits. 
right <laughs> oxidation uh you know it gets flat there's just everything you do and you let it sit just kind of degrades the quality of the beer right but there is certain beer out there that that aims to to age like wine those corked and caged. or like liquor yeah i mean yeah. that's what the brewers say uh you know <laughs> again it's like yeah. who's really going to be the judge of that Right. Yeah, because unless you're drinking a fresh version of that beer and then a you know a 12 year old version of that beer, you're really not going to be able to get the difference. Right, but I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say there's certain uh, strains that require time, like the you know certain strains of yeast, like uh, Brett? You know, it, you just need to allow it to sit. But I get what you're saying. Like, there's no point in saving a beer for five plus, you know, you know, ten plus years. And I, it, we say that, and some people do it. I mean, one of the uh, one of the most interesting events uh, in New York City is that uh, big bottle share the World of Wild beers are, and you know some guys who just keep beer forever. They're bringing some beers to that event that are seven, eight years old, nine years old, and. <laughs> I'm kind of with you on that. Like, I, I don't really know if those beers are really that special just because they've been dusting my shelves for eight or nine years. Because, again, I... I it just depends on what you look for in a beer and what you like and don't like. Yeah. And a lot of, um, you know, qualities that are not ideal come out in beer when you lay it down, when you rest it. Right, so in this sip of sunshine, for example, when I when I first cracked it, I can you yeah, can we look up some stats on this beer? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, just to talk about its freshness and and what I'm getting from it, um, it's it smells great. It immediately smells like fresh cr- fresh cut grass to me. Sure, so and and then the longer sense. you let this can sit, the more that's going to deteriorate. Right. Right. So and one of the reasons quickly. why you love this beer right now is because the smell is just incredible. Right, and it, it, it it's it's when you're talking IPA, a very defining character of an IPA. It should reek. It should smell like <laughs> like ganja. It should just you know sure. be super pungent. Yeah, yeah, very very so uh, aromatic. This is from Lawson's Finest Liquids in Vermont. Uh, it's an American Double Imperial IPA. It's eight percent, right. and it's a rotating uh, beer of theirs. The lupulin-laden India Pale Ale is packed with juicy tropical fruit character, bright floral aromas, and delectable la- uh, layers of hop flavors. Uh, pour mindfully, inhale deeply, and enjoy a, <laughs> a tropical vacation in a glass. Always store cold, enjoy fresh, and stay cool. That is their official release on the beer. Boom. <laughs> are there any stats like on how it's brewed, hops that are used? I'm just kind of really looking for what hops are in this. I looked up clone recipes for this, and um, most of them said Columbus, Tomahawk, Zeus, and a buttload of Citra. Huh. That's what I've kind of... Citra collectively, that's, yeah, what I've gotten from clones. Huh. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perusing the Googles. You're perusing the gigs. Yeah, I don't really see... Uh, gigs. Also, I would be interested to see how they actually... Uh, in terms of like the hop schedule, this beer because you recently brewed a beer, yes, rice IPA, yes, yes, and uh, it was kind of your like test slash like experiment to see if late hopping it, like really really late hopping it, like after flame out. Right, we talked last episode. I had two would goals. give it a lot of aroma. Yeah, I have two goals on this beer: a, 
viscosity. I'm trying to to get a little more uh, malt characteristic out of my grain bill um, while keeping it still pretty simple. And the second part was aroma. And uh, my brewmaster, J3PO, uh, and I would often, one of the most interesting conversations we would have, especially when we were developing Ghost, which you love and reeks of coconut and, you know, these tropical uh, floral notes. Um, we were trying to figure out, like, where the aroma from the beer was coming from mostly and, you know, start manipulating that and figuring out um, different ways to extract the smells we liked as opposed to the ones we didn't. And um, I personally think that uh, flame-out additions are kind of silly. And from a home brewer's perspective, what a flame out addition basically is is that you're you're in the last uh, stages of your boil. Literally, when the timer hits zero, you kill the flame on your stove and you immediately start adding hops. And um, what you're trying to simulate on a homebrew level is what uh, big breweries do in a whirlpool. And I, I Have think you ever actually like started around to create that whirlpool? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's easy to do. I mean, the problem is, is that in order to simulate that whirlpool, you either have to constantly stir it or you have to be transferring it to your primary. And as you transfer it to your primary, you start up a whirlpool. And then it, it's kind of like, you know, if you grab a carboy and flip it upside down and you spin it and you create that centrifugal force and then it just creates that little twister then it's a side cyclone and it just drains itself. Um, it's totally done. I mean, even, uh, <laughs> uh, like three barrel brewer, uh, breweries that still have like three kettle systems. That's how they do it. That's how they whirlpool. They just started it up and then just, you know, take a pump and pull the beer into a fermenter. And while it's centrifuging, they can, you know, do their whirlpool simulation at that point. Um, so was your, first of all, so what hops did you pick to late hop your beer? Amarillo was yes. one of them. Um, and I think Pacific Jade was the other one, I believe. And how did you pick those hops? Um, they have tropical characteristics, but they're more floral. So I, my logic behind it was that if something is more floral, it's generally more, uh, I guess the way you would say floral to somebody who doesn't know what, what, what characteristics look for. It's a little more uh, spikier, a little more like grass, like fre again, fresh cut grass or like a, it, it just sticks out more. It would, it would impact the beer uh, a little more harshly than something that was more tropical or citrusy or, or, or fruity. I think that's supposed to be more of like, you know, a perk up your nose uh, type thing. I was looking for something that would stick around in the taste and stick around in the bitterness. So I picked those two to be more of that punch you in the palate, and then I I have two more that I'm actually uh, today is day six of fermentation. I'm gonna do a, a six day edition. I'm gonna do an eight day edition. Six day edition is gonna be at the very tail end. I'm gonna transfer it from primary to secondary. So the second it hits secondary and it's done transferring, I'm gonna blast it with the six day edition, and then I'm gonna do again at eight. And so technically they're both secondaries. Um, I just think because it's a transfer, I don't know, it's whatever. I'm being a dork now. No, no. So, so some hop varieties that have worked really well for late hop addition ad additions include Cascade, uh, Amarillo, Tomahawk, Simcoe, Chinook, 
uh, Palisade, Tomahawk, Simcoe. So it's ones These that are, are low, alpha, low, low in alpha acids. You uh, want low, low in alpha beta. acids. Low beta, yeah, sorry. Um, low alpha, high beta. That's what you want for... I flipped it, for, yeah. For aromatics. Yeah, I, it's... Uh, but so hop selection is very important. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Right. If you use a higher alpha acid you, and you throw them in at the end, it's just going to make it kind of astringent and really fucking gross, like way too bitter. Uh, the chemical reaction is just not going to be very pleasing. So you're looking for low alpha hop, we'll see. So which is the first key to late hop addition. Now we're going down this rabbit hole here. No, right? I mean, it's so important, right? No, no, it no. It depends. You're, you're like right. ingredients that you select, it's going to give you preferred or non-preferred outcome. 100% correct. But so here's where the home brewer level kind of bull, I call bullshit. I'm, I, I think it's crap. Um, is that you're not ever really getting the same result of a whirlpool at a homebrew level, at a five-gallon system. You're not – a whirlpool essentially is creating uh, a centrifuge, which is pulling and extracting these uh, lupulins and the oils out of the hops. And uh, it's not really an agitated boil, and the idea is that, like, it, it gets into the beer, like, it mixes in, but it doesn't really, like, saturate the liquid so you're, you're not you're not really like infusing it with bitterness you're just really like getting that surface aromatics and i think because a it's only five gallons of liquid and b you have no way to constantly allow that uh liquid to be spinning that you're getting that effect so it's, I, I think it's honestly just a waste of hops and at the end of the day what you're really doing at the homebrew level is making your beer cloudier and in a New England IPA that obviously is also advantageous, you want a New England IPA to be almost opaque, look like juice. You don't want to be able to have lights shine through it. And it does achieve that effect to a degree, but I don't think it's actually adding any significance to the, f the, the aromatics and the floral notes of your beer. So I did it pretty aggressively for this beer. I added about an ounce of hops five minutes after, uh, or I added... Hops at flame out five minutes after and twenty minutes after. But what was your? Where were your bittering hops? Thirty minutes. Thirty minutes, yeah. And how many? T how many dual ounces did you add there? Uh, one. You said one, right? I or don't two? Know. I don't know if I'm at essentially. <laughs> so if you're going to be late hopping beer, in addition to picking the correct hops, so uh, you know low alpha, high beta, you yeah. want to compensate the fact that you're going to be adding more hops later in the boil. So you want to add less. And fewer, like so, the you want to add less hops overall, the amount of hops, and you want to add them later in, in into the boil. So, uh, actually, the the way you get uh, like the way you calculate IBUs is how long they're staying under agitation and how long they're staying under boiling temperatures. So, when you start getting beer that's added later, even if it's a high alpha acid, it impacts the bitterness of your beer less. Right. It, so it, it you're, so the answer to what you're saying is really no. Because if you're doing it at flame out and beyond, like you're not really using these things for bitterness at this point. And that's why you're saying you get low alpha and high beta. Alpha is going to impact the taste of your beer. Beta is going to impact the... I mean, and again, this is gross. Aromatic. Gross. Or yeah, this is gross generalizations too. Um, it, it, again... I'm sure there are books that go way deeper into this. To me, it's just uh, how, what aromatics are, am, are am I, like, am I going for? Am I going for something that 
is all on the front end when you first crack it open like we did with this can of sip of sunshine to me that is secondary fermentation dry hopping right so late so, late addition hopping and dry hopping kind of yield two different results yeah right so um it's it's characterized as more resiny and grassy um if you're doing hops that are boiled right it's 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 when you no, no. drink so, the liquid so, so and it's it settles. more resiny and grassy if you dry hop and after you boil hops you get more of like a floral and spicy the way i like to think about it is that when you boil hops that's the part of the beer that when you drink it it lingers on your tongue right and the late hopping or the dry hopping that's the stuff that hits your nose before you even drink the beer Aroma, correct. It's just straight aroma. The bouquet. But but the problem with the bouquet of the beer is that it's super freaking time sensitive. You have, I would want to say within the first month, your IPA or your pale ale that is dry hopped is released. After that first month, it's lost most, I would say 75% of its aromatics. And it's such a fast drop-off. This is just a really interesting uh, conversation to me because people have a lot of different views on this, right? Like, there, there was a brewing scientist, I have my, my notes here, uh, Jean de Klerk. Uh, he found that late hopping was, he found it to be wasteful yeah. and possibly harmful to beer flavor. But a lot of professional brewers today are turning more and more to late hopping to get that aroma and flavor that is kind of, being demanded now in our in our beer market but the thing is so people have is different views on it the problem the problem with it is that the, again with the, the same way with home brewing and the same way with in, industrial like you know craft breweries is that it's all based on the equipment that you have and it's what you have access to so if you're um capable of dealing with uh, you know, uh, space issues or whatever, you're not going to care that you're tying up a fermenter a little extra longer to make sure that you can allow those aromatics to infuse into your beer by dry hopping them. Like, it, it's, it's more of a question of, like, what, wh why would we take the time? You know, why, why would we sacrifice uh, uh, valuable production time on this and, w and what's the outcome that we're going to get? If you're telling me that I can whirlpool this on the way to the tank, then great and get a desired effect that I want and enough aromatics, then awesome. I don't have to spend a couple extra days and, you know, putting myself out to, to make a beer more aromatic. And I think one way, um, I mean, what, what we were talking about as we were developing this, you brought up The Alchemist, and you're like, oh, we should look at how they do it because, you know, everything they do is off the charts. That beer is both very, very bitter tasting and just reeks. They kind of do a little of everything. But the production length of that beer as a as a brewer, I'm just like that that beer takes so much extra time and extra care. But that is when you when you ask people what a New England IPA is, they say Hetty Topper, the Alchemist. That is the uh what is it? The Plin the Elder? That's the West Coast. Oh, the um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Russian <laughs> River. You're talking about Russian River's Pliny the Elder. Pliny, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Versus that, that the Alchemist. The Hetty Topper. Topper is the right. East Coast New England IPA version. You have both. The, the, that's your black and white cookie. There it is right there. West Coast, East Coast. And I, I think as someone who went into IPAs and pale ales kicking and screaming, the one thing that finally 
made me bite and made me enjoy them stylistically were the aromatics. And right. that it, it's a hard thing to 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 get right because it is so time sensitive. Again, I don't want after I dry hop this beer on day eight, I'm gonna take it until it hits uh, 1.010, this final gravity, which is where I want it to be, and I'm going to keg it, and I want it, like, gone within two weeks. I want to flip it right. that fast. And after two weeks, I don't really feel proud about it anymore. I'm just like, this is not the way I intended it to smell. It's already starting to drop off. The malt characteristic is obviously starting to come forward. Like, this is not the beer that I set out to make. And it's, it's a hard thing to swallow because as a brewer you also know sometimes your beer is going to go out there i i remember one of the first times i gave out beer to friends and i was really excited because so many people hit me back they were like oh yeah you're gonna give out free like free beer give it to me like i want it like I'm, I'm so excited to drink your stuff some people did do that some people did drink it right away and gave me feedback oh my god like this is what i like i remember it one was a blonde ale Yep. And the other one was a um, the coffee cream ale that I made a little while back. I think we brought up in another episode, and I, uh, you weren't feeling it. But um, there were certain people who got those two beers who <laughs> didn't drink them for, like, six months. And I started getting upset. I, start, I started being like, you know what, man? Like, I don't care – that you didn't drink it, what upsets me the most is when you do drink it. Because your impression of my beer is going to be something that wasn't my original intent. Right. And it, it's it's hard to cope with, I think. And, and that's why making New England IPAs and making pale ales like, kind of makes me nervous because it's like I want it to be consumed in that way. I want it to go in and out just as fast as I made it. I want people to have it just I mean, yeah, but so then the only way you can control it is by controlling distribution and where right. that beer goes. I need to how make much of it goes where it goes. Right. So we're talking about it from a marketing standpoint, I need to make a very little bit of it and make it super exclusive and it's good till it's gone. Like, you know, there's that, uh, there's a really good friend of mine lived out in uh, Kansas for a while and uh, he had this barbecue place that he would go to. It was out of a gas station. It's like one of the most, like Anthony Bourdain's like favorite barbecue in the country. I forget the name of this place. Um, it eludes me. And I remember going there at lunchtime and like waiting in a massive line to get these ribs. And one of the things that made them so great is that they only made so many of them until they were gone. For us, it would be um, over in Red Hook, hometown, hometown barbecue. barbecue. Yeah, yeah, it's a similar situation. Yeah. It's like it's good and it's great till it's gone. And I think every IPA and pale ale should be that way. Um, there are obviously those larger craft. Like, you know, you can find Sierra Nevada pale ale everywhere all day, every day. Right. So you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. What? So my goal of the, this conversation was to ask you what late edition hopping has taught you so far. Um, surface area is important. Um, you actually taught me this uh, technique-wise. I was doing uh, muslin bags. In a glass carboy, the problem is, and the big headache, is your clearance space is really small because it comes to a, almost like a bottle-like um, neck. 
you can't really get your hand in there. And what you would idealistically want to do is get all the hops laid out almost flat across the top of the beer. You want sure. as much surface area as possible Correct. to increase the amount that you're infusing the aromatics into the beer. So by putting it in a muslin bag, it made it really easy to insert and extract. The hardest part at, at a five-gallon level is when you go in to try to e either, you know, you're going to upend this carboy into a drain, and it's going to be full of this muck, this, like, yeast cake and, and, the, and these hop scum and all this sh uh, stuff. So putting it in a muslin bag makes it a lot easier to manage. You can kind of get, like, a little hook and, like, reach in there and grab the bag and, like, slip it out through the neck and just throw the hop scum out. But it dramatically reduces the amount of uh, exposure to that surface area, so you're not getting as good aromatics out of it. So what uh, you suggested to me, this is like one of my favorite uh, sessions we ever had of brewing, was putting the pellets into a coffee grinder and pulverizing them into a powder. Um, yeah, have we already talked about this on the yeah, podcast? Yeah, yeah, So Okay. <laughs> this is just like the coolest like unlock of my life, yeah. like life hack of my life. And I learned it a really long time ago. Yeah. And it was when I went to Harpoon Brewery. And I was like doing the whole, you know, normal ass you know, touristy brewery tour. Right. I'm like standing up there and I'm like fucking looking around cause I'm super bored. And I see a dude like down on the floor and he's like throwing uh, something into, you know, what looked like a gigantic coffee grinder. And out of it was like coming massive, like billowy lime green puffs of like, it looked like smoke. So I just like went up to the guy who was giving us the tour. And I was like, dude, what is that guy down there doing? And he's just like, Oh, he is taking hot pellets and he's putting them through a grinder so they come out as powder. He's like, and then we're going to use that powder to dry hop. And I was like, whoa, that's a really cool technique. I was like, how did you learn that? And he's like, well, we did tasting panels with a lot of people. I mean, like Harpoon's a relatively big brewery, so they have, you know, access to do this, like put together panels of people and they blind taste tested people on their beers. And people said that the, um, beer that was the IPA that was dry hopped with the powder was more, it had more aromatics, like visible and, you know, detectable and perceived aromatics, like hop, hop aroma. And the reason was, he was saying, is because they take it and they sprinkle it on top of the beer and that powder kind of like stays suspended in the liquid. Whereas if you were just taking a full heavy pellet and dumping it in there, it would kind of just like either float in one condensed crushed pellet shape or right. drop to the bottom. Right. So again, surface area is very important. Right. So I it, it opened up a That's what you learned late hopping though. That was my question to you. I mean late I you mean so you mean late hopping like flame out. Like flame out and beyond, yes. I think it's a piece of crap. I think it's a waste of time. I think if it does serve any purpose, it would make sense at a industry brewery level. Because, again, you have the surface area, same we were talking about just dry hopping just now. If you have a vessel that can hold uh, three barrels, which, you know, it's probably about five feet. Yeah, probably about four or five feet in diameter. That's a lot of surface area on that liquid. But for me, who's on a five-gallon system, we're talking about, like, maybe, like, 36, maybe 32 inches like circumference of uh, or diameter of that circle, like it's not a lot. 
combine that with the fact that I can't whirlpool, like I'm not getting that much aromatics at, at late hop editions. Like I'm, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. See, so it's, inter- it's interesting. Yeah, you're, it's interesting. I confirmed I... with that brew that I'm I'm not doing late hop editions again. Okay. I'd rather cool. spend the time doing primary and secondary uh, hop editions. And even dry so, hop. Uh, you uh, dry, dry hop. Yeah, I'm sorry, dry hop. And right. uh, one of the things about uh, primary uh, dry hopping that I learned is that you don't actually want to be adding too much uh, hops to the primary. Uh, especially if you have a what is it a mid to high flocculating yeast like London Three, which is right. the yeast that I'm using for this beer, um, you don't want to do that because it actually messes with the yeast as it's in suspension in the liquid. Correct. So th- th- the actual chemical like what's happening and, chemically and the breakdown. In the beer. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So you don't want to like basically agitate the yeast. You want to leave them alone. So interesting. Um, that's for, why for people who don't know. By the way, sorry. I'm not trying to intentionally interrupt you. No, I just ahead, ahead. primary and secondary. That might not be like something that pe- our listeners are familiar with. Oh, so okay. primary fermentation is right after you're done with flame out, which means you've mashed your beer, you've boiled your beer, you've added your hops, and it's cooled down now to 60 degrees, and you're putting it in your carboy. 64 degrees. 64 degrees. Yeah. I think it's 60 degrees, 62, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, you're you're adding the yeast. It's from the point where you pitch the yeast and you blend the yeast into the wort. To when you transfer that to either a second vessel, a keg, another carboy, it's like primary is what usually for yeast, like primary three to seven days. Primary, no, it could be anywhere from like six to two weeks. Okay, um, and then secondary is usually just again transferred again to clean up the beer and add extra hop aroma. Right, aromatics and clarity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're taking the right the tanks. Thing, the, the, is what yeah, breweries the thing, yeah, breweries have right tanks. Yes, exactly. And the the other idea is that you're taking it off the yeast cake because as right. as the yeast eat and and pro- uh, produce waste, and their waste is the alcohol that we drink, uh, they fall out of suspension and they they settle towards the bottom. That's like their dead bodies. Just right, like it's just sitting on dead ass yeast. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. want to get it off of that, which right. also helps to clean up the beer as well. Right, and you know, it's like making uh, like stock. You gotta keep skimming it, skimming the fat off, skimming the fat off, skimming the fat off, huh. make it clear. Oh, stock, stock. Yeah. I was thinking gravy. Sorry, I was way. I was like, what? You just feel I just love to cook, so I always compare everything to cooking. <laughs> but it is very similar. Brewing and cooking is very similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. Anyway, this is a really great lead into Vermont and talking about going to Vermont. Uh, yeah. The the late hop edition. The reason why we, you know, you t- well, I wanted to try it is because I read a Hetty Topper clone. Right. Hetty Topper is from the Alchemist, who's in Stowe, Vermont. Right. Um, and we're about to head up there in a couple weeks. Yes, so excited to experience all that Vermont has to offer. A lot of, uh, a lot. I, I think this is the trip where we actually catch the alchemist in the right spot, and we're actually going to be able to, uh, catch them open. Every time we go up to Vermont, they're closed. It's I actually would be more interested in going to Hill Farmstead. It's my white whale. Hill Farmstead is mine. I've been really? to Vermont countless times. I can't even count how many times. And I've never been to Hill Farmstead. Huh. It is not by Burlington. It is like an hour, I want to say, west of Burlington, southwest. But it's, uh, it's not. Yeah, sure. it's not. Lake it's Champagne not, uh, is right on the west. <laughs> right, right, right. Champlain, Champlain. Champagne. Champagne. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, uh, I am. Yeah, I mean, I just love. I used to go to Vermont a lot. So there were like the classic you know, breweries to always try to get to. 
um, Zero Gravity a long time ago, Vermont, Vermont Brew Pub. I don't know what it's called. Uh, there, there's a ton in downtown Burlington to go to, and those are like college-y, kitschy ones. Yeah. And then like all the sort of artisanal ones started to open up. Uh, Fiddlehead, Hill Farm said it's always been there. Uh, last time we went, we went to Foam. Which oh was the, the newest one that yeah, I had tell, experienced. Tell, let's talk a little bit about that. They were talk only a, a couple months old when we when we went up there, and that was a couple years ago. You know, like three years ago. So they're relatively new to the scene, um, but they're making some really cool beers up there. I actually was pulling up an article because there are so many breweries. If you go to these, you know, brewery heavy cities. Uh, we go up pretty often. You know, we go up every couple months. You know, w- at least once a year. And every time we're up in, you know, Portland, Maine, Vermont, anywhere kind of like in the New England area where beer's exploding right now, there's just a new brewery every time we go there. Yeah, yeah. So I always kind of try to, you know, educate myself going up into a place to try to find out like what's new, what I have not known about before. And I think uh, for 2017, anyway, Foam was named as the number one. Uh, brewery in, in Burlington to go check out. You know, what's really interesting is that um, you did mention uh, as we were playing the strip that, you know, the Vermont uh, Brewers Fest is up there uh, two weeks yeah, after so we're going. Yeah, no, that was interesting for me to actually research. Uh, so uh, the reason why I started going up to Vermont is because I was like really heavy on the uh, brew festival scene, beer festival scene. And and the best one I've ever been to, and it's still the best one I've ever been to, is the Vermont Brewers Fest because uh, the Vermont Brewing Association will put it on every year. And it was on the fucking, literally it was on Lake Champlain. It was in the park overlooking the waterfront. Um, and that is coincidentally where fucking foam rented some space, you know, a little step back, but right, essentially right on the waterfront on Lake Champlain. You know, what's really interesting that you're bringing this up is that I think the reason why they are not present this year at this festival is because their tap room will be open anyway and people can walk right off the festival and just go drink at their place anyway. (laughs) <laughs> they're right there they are no it's, right so it's on so but anyway no so it's not gonna be uh on lake champlain this year they're having it in oh, three no weeks way. they're having it in three it's usually in the summer it's usually in june i want to say maybe it's usually in the or summer July, yeah it's yeah, when yeah. it's gorgeous in vermont this year this is the first year in like i think 22 or 25 years they're changing it and they're having it in three weeks march like you know the second week of march 20, third 20 week something. of march yeah yeah, yeah. In Killington, at Killington, uh. the, the, the ski resort. So still, which is cool. It's a total like you know three sixty. They're trying to do it something completely been different. If it wasn't like forty degrees constantly right now, and you could go snowboarding, but like that's I be. so, but like I love their idea because I don't like to ski or snowboard, and I feel like they're really kind of trying to get people to go up to a mountain and hang out and have a good time and give them a reason to go up there if you're not into skiing. You know how many drunk skiers they're going to be anyway, trying to ski on what's left of that mountain, just crashing. In I just picture like every Vermontian always being like least a little inebriated <laughs> because there's so many good breweries up there. Yeah. But anyway, I'm super psyched to get up there and see what uh, Foam's been cooking up these days. Yeah, I think that's going to be our first out-of-state podcast. I would really like to try to make that our first remote. Hopefully, uh, well, we're going to try to look into it, but hopefully come, coming at you guys from Foam. Um, see if that could happen. That'd be great. So um, that'll, be in anyway. co- that'll be in like three weeks, three podcasts from now, three episodes from now. <laughs> Assuming we stay, you know, on top of our stuff. But True to the format. Yeah. Well, 
Let's sip some of this sunshine, and why don't we... Uh, sip on out of here? <laughs> yes, what are we, what are we using to here. take us out? Uh, you know what? What? There's been a lot of talk <laughs> of studio albums. So as a like nice gesture to you, I'm taking <laughs> us to your great. first New Year's run. Oh, great. 2014. To make up for this. Yes, 2014. Miami. Miami. And we're going out on your gumbo. Oh, yeah. This is great. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. All right. Enjoy this gumbo. Yeah. I know I did. I lost my shit. Thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of God of Jabru. Please reach out to us. Our email address is godofjabru at gmail.com. Uh, leave us some messages. We're also on Facebook. On Facebook. Uh, can you comment? Can you actually comment via this podcast? I mean, to ask you that. Comment. I don't do any social media. I should say the Lizza is like an old woman. Uh, um, you're, just, you're enlightened. You're beyond. Yeah. No. So, so where can people comment and make us all feel bad about what we're saying on this <laughs> podcast and how wrong so, it is and how shitty we are? Yeah. Where, where, where can that be as, said? As the person who who you know kind of is managing our social media, we are on Facebook at Gadajabru. We are on Instagram at Gadajabru. We have our email at gotajabru at gmail.com. So email us, leave us poopy, stinky pictures on Instagram and comments on Facebook. <laughs> no, uh, what, or what you're doing, you know, at that moment. Yeah, or anything you want us to talk about. Updates, uh, cool ass fish stuff that we don't know about. Watkins Glen, as far as I know, right, still not announced. Everyone's still been chit-chattering about it. Still not announced. They're doing when again when purpose. they do. I will see all you fish fans there, <laughs> and we can podcast from there. Yeah, that'll be great. Cha ching! All right, so cool. So enjoy this gumbo from my first New Year's Eve run, 2014, American Airlines Arena, and I am the Liza, and I am the kid. See you next time. We will catch you on the next episode. His car is trapped in the snow He's planning a family vacation But he just can't go The next corner's a river His feathers are trapped in a sling He's been slapped by some gunslinging parrot He's jealous he's got no grip There ain't no time to stash the gumbo Or rattle around in a cage The sacrifice Charles made bubbles His fiddle is everywhere Sand, I'm my feet, they blister and cake with debris. Shells roll is God in the tour for It's a fool riding no more on sandpaper. He's sending them off to himself. When he gets them a couple days later, he'll put them along his top shelf. In a week he'll get tired of shavings. Carve up a good hunk of wood. Remembering to check on the sausage He's got cooking somewhere but good There ain't no time to stash the gumbo Or rattle around in a cage The sacrifice draws made bubbles His fizzle is everywhere in range In the hot sand, I rid of my feet They blister and cake with debris Chevrolet is gone in the toe for my angry pills
smash the combo or rattle around in a cage. The sacrifice Charles made bubbles. His fiddle is everywhere in rage. In a hot sand, I render my feet. They blister and cake with debris. Chevrolet is guarding the tour port while angry fiddles with glee. Chesrolet is guarding the turbo while 